Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Well, I say with, but she's not exactly in the broom-covered studio with me, but she is switched on and ready to roll from her own recording base. One day, Sarah, we will record this in the same room. Although we've, we've just gone through another COVID isolation in our family, so I'm probably actually best avoided at the moment. We've taken staying at home to new levels in this house anyway, but when I do drive over to see my dad and stop to fill up at the pumps, it's just so expensive. It's amazing how high prices have gone, particularly diesel. Yes, and if, like us, you were up for buying a new car, it's also been a bit of a shocker. Waiting lists are so long. Of course, it is partly down to the computer chip shortage, but it comes at a time when the industry is really trying to accelerate sales of electric vehicles too. And this business is the focus of today's podcast in an episode we're calling Getting Under the Bonnet of the Car Industry. In the driving seat with us is Nigel Goodwin, who's been in the business for 27 years and runs CarWise in Derby. Hi, Nigel. It's been quite an interesting time in the business, hasn't it? We certainly haven't experienced anything like the inflation or the price rises on used cars in any of the uh, time that I've been involved in the motor trade. Um, My business partner is actually older than me. He refers back to the Suez Canal problems back in the 70s when um, the uh, oil prices uh, went sky high. Okay, Nigel, thank you. Let's delve into just why it's so similar to the 1970s a little bit later. Really looking forward to speaking to you. So we'll also chat to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst at HL, who's been delving into the prospects for auto trader in this weird car market, as well as some of the brands at the forefront of the electric vehicle revolution. And we'll hear from our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, Emma Wall, who's been talking to Jeff Atherton, Manager of the MAN GLG Japan Core Alpha Fund. And Susanna's put together some more impossible questions. So this time it's apparently about cars made in the UK. And I can't say I'm very optimistic. I know very much about that. But before we get to the nuts and bolts of the car business, we'll start a bit closer to home and looking at the cost of living crisis and more specifically the soaring rate of inflation. Yes, we already knew that prices were hot, but they have risen again with the Consumer Price Index measure of inflation up 5.5% in the year to January. The fact that there has been another rise didn't, though, come as too much of a surprise, given that in the US, prices are galloping up by 7.5% at a clip not seen since 1982. A perfect storm of the labour crunch, supply chain issues and a surge in the price of raw materials and commodities like all. They're all sending prices higher. Yes, and transport's one of the major areas where we've seen prices soar. And a a big part of this has been the oil price rise, which has kind of fed into prices at the pumps. So petrol is up 24.4% in a year, which means that filling up your car is now about £16 more expensive than it was a year before. And the oil price, it's feeds through into everything. So it's manufacturing and distribution. And so that we've seen price rises right across the board. So it's everything from pasta to patio furniture. We've also seen second-hand cars amongst the biggest rises, up 28.7% in the year to January. And that's been driven up by a combination of factors, which starts with just how difficult it's been to get your hands on a new car. Yes, what's driving prices up is the semiconductor chip shortages. Car manufacturers temporarily shut down at the start of the pandemic and demand fell through the floor. But elsewhere, demand for electronics like phones and tablets boomed in lockdowns. The chips needed for these products are far more sophisticated, so have bigger profit margins. So chip manufacturers focused on making these chips instead. 
When car production started again, there was a major shortage. It would have taken months to meet these orders anyway, but because they wanted cheaper chips, don't we all? There wasn't much incentive for chip makers to prioritise them. It meant that there are still huge delays in chips for car manufacturers, which meant long delays at car factories. And last year, according to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, car production in the UK fell to its lowest level since 1956. Just under 860,000 new cars rolled off UK production lines, which is even fewer than in 2020, when the first wave of COVID and the associated lockdowns forced several factories to close. Now, there are hopes the shortages will ease, with new computer chip plants being built to try and keep up with demand, but they won't come fully online for a few years. And Meanwhile, there are warnings that high energy costs could also be another challenge for car makers this year. So there's a huge number of challenges there for, for the car makers and the shortage of new cars is kind of fed into this problem for the second hand cars. So buyers are in fact turning to, to nearly new cars instead of, of waiting for these new cars to come online. And they're joining the queues of people who decided to buy their own car when the pandemic kicked off and they decided not to use public transport. And at the same time, there's a major supply shortage of new used cars too. Part of the problem was that fewer cars were being bought a year ago. And that means fewer one-year-old second-hand cars. So traders are also facing the fact that people with car leases drove less during lockdowns. And so they've decided to extend their lease for another year. Plus, of course, with fewer people buying new cars, there are fewer trade-ins too. And as a result, there's been this huge surge in prices and fall in sales of used cars in the last quarter of 2021. Demand for used electric cars is surging, though, and battery vehicles are selling like hotcakes. Last year, there were more than 40,000 used EVs changing hands, up almost 120%. The proposed ban on the sale of diesel and petrol cars is prompting drivers to switch to electric cars at record rates. And it may also have been prompted by new rules for clean air zones in some towns and cities, like here in Bristol. From June this year, drivers of older, more polluting vehicles are being charged to enter the city centre. So let's lift the bonnet on what all of this means for the car industry with Nigel Goodwin from Carwise in Derby. So Nigel, can you start by telling us a little bit about your business? We set up 27 years ago and we're um, a used uh, car dealer and we service MOT and repair cars. We've been trading for 27 years now and we've never experienced anything like it uh, for shortage of used car supply. And as you've already said, because of the shortage in supply, prices have uh, been increasing uh, over, well, uh, since COVID, since lockdown in the main ended, sort of uh, end of June last year. Um, we've never been able to uh, replenish our stocks to what we normally have. We usually run between 25 to 40 used cars on our forecourt and um, we're averaging about 10 to 12 at the moment, because as soon as we get the cars in, we're we're selling them. And are you having to do anything sort of different in order to try and track down stock? Oh dear, now there's a good trade secret. (laughs) um, We're very active buying cars. We're very um, particular on the cars that uh, we buy. We use a couple of online auctions, which are very good. Then we source a lot of the cars uh, privately, which is hard work, but um, we tend to go down that route because we find that the cars are a good quality. We get cars from people who are 
trading cars in. But that's, uh, interestingly, that's become very difficult. People don't seem to want to trade in so easily as they used to. Uh, We buy cars for cash as well, and we're having to travel uh, far and wide. I mean, I travel to Scotland, London, Wales, uh, to buy cars now, which um, we, we always have done, but we are noticing we're having to travel further afield. You say it's a, a situation that we've not seen since the 1970s. This must really be the talk of the trade at the moment. Do you think that you could see some companies actually being forced to wind up because they just can't get their hands on enough cars? People I know are, yeah, all short of stock, but they're um, they're trading well. Everybody seems to be just operating on less, uh, but still turning over cars, but not actually um, having the full stock. So on the sort of demand side of things, are you finding that, that demand has boomed as well or is it is it the same demand for fewer cars? As you quite rightly pointed out with COVID, it's really uh, kick-started our industry because of public transport. People are scared to uh, travel on uh, trains and uh, buses. So they you know, started buying cars and that's when the springboard started to really um, happen. And since then, we've had this problem w- w- with stock, especially our sort of price level between about 5,000 and 25,000. And we noticed that certainly sub six or 7,000 pound cars, sort of four to 7,000 were really, really in demand. You know, people just wanting something, a good quality car with a good history, just to, oh, you know, to go to work in. And of course, okay, we're paying more for cars now, but the margins are, to be fair, seem to be higher. I mean, I really prefer to buy cars cheaply and sell them at a more competitive price, but at the moment, you just can't do that. And sometimes we're looking at prices of cars and just thinking, oh, crikey, you know, that's ridiculous. You know, sort of a car which we know we were paying four and a half for it and selling it for, you know, sort of five, five and a half or five, nine, nine, five a year ago. Um, that car's sort of a £7,000 car. Yeah, there have been some reports that actually used cars are going for more than they were when they were brand new. Have you seen that at all? Yeah, certainly. More, I would say, in the top end of the market. Certainly, if you're looking at Range Rovers, Porsche, Maseratis, I've known customers who've got those type of cars and the dealers have been ringing them up and asking them to sell them. You know, they've had them for about six months and uh, dealers are offering them the same money or more money. And then, in turn, they're putting um, quite a margin on top of those, which is higher or greater than the actual new car. Uh, price because of the shortage, as you quite rightly say, about the shortage of you know silicon chips and the you know the precious metals that they're made out of, which is causing the uh, shortage of new cars. I've just sold two cars last week. One customer was buying a um, high-end Range Rover Evoque, and they had a year to a year and a half uh, lead time on it. And they came to me and bought a um, X1, BMW X1, with 42,000 miles just to tie them over because they didn't want to, you know, they couldn't wait for a year and a half and they needed a 4x4. So I think ours was about 14,500. So they've just bought that just to tie them over. And at the other extreme, there was a a customer whose wife had ordered a, a Tiguan, Volkswagen Tiguan. And there again, they wanted a lot of extras on it and they were having to wait over 12 months for it. And they just came in and bought a Fiat Panda offers for 4995 just to, you know, because they needed a car and to uh, keep going. So we're getting 
uh, sales like that now. So it's a really um, crazy market. What kind of interest are you seeing in used electric vehicles? We don't sell uh, electric vehicles. I don't actually go out and uh, buy them. To get involved in electric cars, you do need uh, quite a lot of specialist equipment. So at the moment, uh, electric car really on the used car side, when you're not a main dealer, is not really a very strong market for us at the moment. I'm not saying it won't be in you know five to ten years' time. We have a lot of customers. They're not coming in and asking us to, oh, we haven't got any used car, uh, electric cars, Nigel. Can you get me this, that, or the other? I mean, they are quite expensive. I mean, a lot of people buy a new um, electric car on a PCP or a lease deal. You know, have it for three years, then change it. Uh, which is probably the way to go with um, uh, with electric cars because they can be the batteries are very expensive after if you have to replace them. Do you think there's range anxiety as well among your customers when it comes to considering whether to buy an electric vehicle? Yes, totally. I mean, the infrastructure within the UK, yeah, we've got a lot to do to make it a feasible um, alternative, I, I personally think. I mean, I go to Cornwall a lot and, um, you know, probably four or five times a year and um yeah and it's over a 300 mile journey so um i would never buy an electric car till i knew i could get at least sort of 400 miles out of one and that's quite a long time off i think at the moment or even have uh, decent charging points which are readily available and you know easily accessible which we haven't really got at the moment. As soon as you get off the beaten track, you're finding it very difficult to charge a car, and especially as you just quite rightly say, you're going to get range anxiety for sure. I think we can actually hear some of your customers in the background there. But in terms of the repair side of your business, have you had any of the same kind of supply issues or you know, any, any of the same sort of demand that you've been having on the, on the sales side? Not so much, um, say, brake pads, discs and things like that. It's more electronic components. If you need, a, say, an electric motor for um, a windscreen wiper motor or something along those lines, then yes, we are having to wait. Usually it used to be you know, a day max, but now we could be waiting three to four days and even longer for certain parts which are electronically based parts we had to get a couple of petrol sensors for a ford cougar the other day and they're actually on back order and we've had to we've had the customers cars just been you know at the garage for um, i think it's three weeks now so you're seeing a real rush of repairs at the moment nigel would you say after that lull during lockdown the whole of the repair industry has just gone ballistic really so we're finding that in the workshop we used to have a two or three uh, day lead time that now has increased to three to four weeks we've never experienced that before we're lucky because we are pretty geared up for servicing here and we'll uh, we've got 10 loan cars which we use so at least if anybody comes in with a major problem if the clutch goes on their car if they've got a, a problem with the engine we can just say look take the loan car and um, we'll get onto it as soon as we can. So at least we can keep our customers um, mobile, which is important. Certainly is. Well, busy office, busy showroom and a busy car repair centre. Thank you so much, Nigel. I really appreciate you joining us. No, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me on.
So it sounds like there are lots of challenges in the market, but some real opportunities for business owners if you can wrestle with them. Now, these trends have been making themselves felt right across the sector. So let me bring in Sophie, our lead equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So Sophie, one of the companies you're looking at also has exposure to the secondhand car market, doesn't it? Hi, Susanna. Yes, it absolutely does. And it won't come as much surprise that that company is Autotrader, which is the UK's largest online car sales platform. So it's for those that aren't fully familiar, it's a digital marketplace where individuals or actually more often car dealerships can advertise and sell their cars. Um, And that means that Autotrader doesn't actually hold any car stocks itself. So that means that the ups and downs of car prices don't directly affect it. Instead, it's kind of huge tailwind for the dealerships that use Autotrader um, for advertising um, and that feeds into advertising revenue for auto trader and pushes up the average revenue per retailer um, which then in, in turn takes some of the pressure off declining forecourt numbers which has been um, a trend we've been we've been seeing for a little while uh, I mean as a bit of context for just how much sway auto trader has at the half year point average revenue per retailer was £2,199 per month. Um, So as I was saying, you know, because it's the biggest, it has significant pricing power with those dealerships. Um, Really, the the biggest challenge to navigate from here is declining overall forecourt numbers, as as I was saying. It has a lot of tools in its armoury, but a misfire on the strategy there would would be pretty painful. And so Sophie Nigel talked a bit about the demand for second-hand electric vehicles, but for a lot of the car manufacturers, the future really relies on them getting this right, doesn't it? Yes, that's certainly the case for for some companies. And of course, I have to talk about Tesla here. We all know it's famous for trying to lead the electric vehicle revolution. And and to be completely fair, those efforts aren't exactly going too badly. Um, Fourth quarter revenue rose 65% to just a massive $17.7 billion, which was above market expectations and reflected a 71% increase in automotive revenue to $16 billion. So, you know, that's making up the biggest part of the pie. Operating profits are also therefore rising sharply because of those increases in production, which plays into that kind of operating leverage dynamic that I've spoken about before. But essentially, it just means that with more cars rattling through expensive to set up factories, um, it has enormous and pretty immediate benefits for for margins. So this is where I kind of diverge a bit from from some opinion. And there's no doubt in my mind that electric vehicles are going to become the future. But for me, there is a debate about how quickly this will happen. Nigel was touching on that a little bit when we're looking at how, how big the infrastructure is and how ready we are for it. Um, and the amount of market share that Tesla will have when, when this big shift does occur, there are other traditional car makers out there pumping billions into electric vehicles. So I, I don't think that it's a case of electric vehicle boom equaling a sales monopoly here. That said, Tesla's core business has enjoyed a period of you know serious technological superiority with a great brand and perhaps more importantly, a really great investment story. So that means expectations have risen. Um, but of course, with that, it means that meeting those isn't going to be an easy feat. Particularly with so many other companies spending so big on electric vehicles. Which other firms have you been looking at in this particular regard? So I tend to look at Volkswagen Group here as, as an example. Um, I should mention that it's a true conglomerate, um, which is kind of hidden by its name. It's responsible for its namesake, as well as Audi, Porsche, Skoda, Bugatti, Bentley and, and others. So it's not just um, VW, really. Um, and the current strategy aims to have electric vehicles equal half of all car sales by 2030. Um, and that comes with a massive 52 billion euro price tag. 
um, just phenomenal amounts of money. The target is admirable, um, but I think the time frame suggests that the global market, as I was saying, simply isn't looking at a total about turn anytime soon, um, which perhaps makes the likes of Volkswagen Group a bit more attractive because all of its eggs aren't in the EV basket. That said, those that have a more bullish view on EVs would, and do, I might add, disagree with me on that. For a bit of context, Volkswagen Group delivered over 450,000 fully electric vehicles last year, which is almost double 2020, and was just 5.1% of total delivery. So a really small part of the pie at the moment. There is a long way to go before the status quo changes. Okay, Sophie, thank you very much for that. Now, of course, another factor to watch in the EV world is that there's been a surge in demand for metals used in the manufacturing of electric vehicles, and they've really been soaring in price. Nickel, a major component in long-range electric engines, recently reached its highest price in 10 years. Aluminium, or should I say for our US listeners, aluminium, has also risen 13% since the start of the year and is close to reaching the last record set back in 2008. Supply just isn't keeping up with demand as the big bounce back after the depths of the pandemic continues, a problem made worse by the energy crisis and power rationing in China, which is really limited production. Now, a typical electric car requires six times the mineral inputs of a conventional car. Lithium is one such mineral in really high demand, as it's such a critical component in electric batteries. And raw materials rich in lithium, like spodamine, rose almost 500% between last January and January this year. Now, this creates opportunities, but also real challenges for mining companies. Increasing production is a capital-intensive business, and the International Energy Agency is urging governments around the world to lay out their long-term commitments to renewables so that the industry really has the confidence to invest. Yes, there's just so many moving parts to the car industry. At this point, I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she's been speaking to Jeff Atherton, who's manager of the MAN GLG Japan Core Alpha Fund. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Emma. So we're here today to talk about car manufacturers, autos. You're a specialist in Japan, which is where there are a couple of household names when it comes to cars. What's the outlook for the sector and how are you feeling about it? Well, we're pretty optimistic. I mean, it's our biggest weighting in the in the portfolio in both absolute terms and relative to the overall market. So, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty on the sector. Obviously, Tesla has been uh, sitting on top of the whole industry for a number of years now. And, and um, people wonder how the incumbents can cope. I mean, but we think um, they've got a very bright future. There are a number of reasons for that. But I think the, the whole Japanese sector is actually very well placed. The US is not Japan, but there is across the world, particularly in developed markets, a kind of cost of living crisis is emerging. We saw the US inflation figures last week out at 7.5%. But the only sector within that CPI basket that hadn't seen price increases was new cars. Is that something that you're seeing for those Japanese autos as well? And how do they overcome that kind of cost of living headwind? I think there's a couple of things, isn't there? I mean, first of all, they're having a lot of supply chain difficulties um, getting hold of semiconductors for example or but just in you know the the cost of steel and other things is going up in fact what they're finding is because there's a shortage really of new cars because of these production difficulties that they're not having to discount 
like they normally do. So that's helping them very much. Typically, if you go to the US, you get sort of two, three thousand dollars off the sticker price when you negotiate with the dealer. And I think that's much, much lower now. The margins appear to be protected. If you look at the latest results from Toyota and Honda, for example, they were very good. And the second benefit they get is they've got very big finance arms in terms of buying cars on lease. And when the used car market is very strong, that gets some extra profits when they sell those lease cars on. So actually, you know, conditions at the moment, apart from getting hold of semiconductors, are pretty good, actually. And you talked a little bit at the top there about Tesla and the threat that is to this sort of income. How much of that is encouraging product innovation or indeed a sort of product pivot for the likes of Toyota? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the first thing is that, you know, the Japanese initially, they were behind in terms of what Tesla was doing. I, I think they thought that they couldn't make a profit on a pure EV. There's no doubt they were a bit slow. I think what they're doing then, and, you know, the way we see it, there are three technologies that will probably coexist for many years and possibly for many decades. And that, that's the sort of pure electric vehicle, as in a Tesla. You're also going to see hybrids and uh, also hydrogen fuel cells. And I think the Japanese, we feel, are ahead in two of those. They're ahead in fuel cells and ahead in hybrids, and they've been behind in EV. But what we're seeing now is a sort of big effort to catch up in EV. So Toyota and Honda, um, Subaru, they're all launching their first EV this year. I think Nissan's going to be the first one off off the rank very shortly. Um, and the Japanese also are working very hard on solid-state batteries, which will give the cars a much bigger range, etc. So yes, there's a huge amount going on. And one of the reasons we're quite keen on the whole sector in Japan is it's, it's probably one of Japan's finest industries historically. I think you take the last few decades, they've been very strong in autos and they've been very strong in precision machinery and electronic components. These are very good companies. They've, they've been battling for many, many decades. We think they've got what it takes to succeed. And how much is regulation an opportunity or a headwind? I'm thinking in particular about things such as sort of carbon intensity, pollution um, in the UK, in London, you have ultra low emission zones, they're rolling them out in other parts of the country as well. How do you when you are forecasting for these stocks, take all that into consideration? The regulations are different in each part of the world as well, which makes it more complicated. So I think Europe is probably the toughest place in terms of CO2 emissions. So, you know, it's probably tended to suit the Japanese, particularly Toyota, because they don't make so many big engines like the Germans do, for example. So the the overall score of somebody like Toyota in terms of CO2 is probably the lowest in Europe. If we move across to hybrid increasingly, that also will benefit them. But yeah, it's difficult. I think one of the interesting things that we're we're looking at at the moment is to some extent we're seeing the real world sort of collide with action against climate change. And we can see that in in the energy markets, you know, in Europe here, which is causing some problems. And I think with autos, you're going to see the same sort of thing because we can't move too quickly to pure EV. You know, we don't have enough lithium or cobalt we don't have enough electricity generated capacity so we expect that there'll be a a slightly more pragmatic approach which will allow these different technologies some time to move together and then you know maybe eventually we get to a world where there are no internal combustion engines but that could be many decades away it's not just fuel type innovation that's quite exciting in the auto space either though is it there's talk of driverless cars or at least ai assisting drivers how do you begin to model that? I mean, it seems like sort of space age stuff, but actually it, it's arguably not that far out. Autonomous is something, again, that perhaps the Japanese were a bit slow to sort of see the kind of real world practicality of that. But I mean, they're now working quite hard. I think Honda's got their first one in Japan 
uh, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, these kind of machines are turning into electronic boxes. You know, they're becoming more like technology and less like a traditional auto. And I think, you know, Tesla is obviously being valued as a tech stock rather than as an auto stock. And maybe that will be beneficial going forward to the names as they become more value-added in terms of electronics. I think the auto industry has a good set up in terms of keeping out competition because you have dealer networks and you have obviously service and, and you've got safety and an awful lot of things that are regulated and that tends to sort of look after the incumbents to some extent. I mean, if you look at the last 35 years or so that I've been in the financial markets and you look at the auto players, they're pretty much the same ones that they were 35 years ago. The Koreans are a bit bigger, the Americans are a bit smaller but and, and then you've got Tesla which has got about 1% market share globally but it's really the same players i think and, and the barriers to entry are quite high so i think that does help and that that is a really interesting final point because obviously i introduced you as you know japanese equity specialist but the companies that you're talking about here really are truly global aren't they it's one of japan's sort of great success stories over the last 30 or 40 years yeah i mean the japanese car market is pretty small and yes if you take a company like honda for example i mean the u.s market is critical to them the other big market for them these days is china these are global companies. They'll kind of live or die by what happens around the world, not just in Japan, which is really quite a small part of what they do these days. Jeff, thank you very much. OK, thank you. That was Emma Wall talking to Jeff Atherton, manager of the MAN GLG Japan Core Alpha Fund. Now, please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. So Susanna's been pulling together some fiendishly hard questions about cars manufactured in the UK. So as anyone who's ever been in a car with me, they're going to know that motoring is just not a great area of expertise. But I'm still going to set my sights really high and hope to get, I don't know, one right this time. I've been kind. I think I have anyway, Sarah. So we're going to start with some exciting facts and figures. And I have already mentioned that 2021 was the worst year for British car manufacturing since 1956, with around a third fewer cars produced than pre-pandemic. However, the industry did manage to produce a record number of alternatively fuelled cars. But what percentage of cars made in the UK last year were electric and hybrid. Was it around 1 in 10, 1 in 20 or 1 in 4? I think Sophie, in fact, gave you a bit of a clue earlier. <laughs> well, even I can follow a clue. So yes, I know that it's on the rise and I know that it's, it's not 1 in 20. I know it's definitely going to be about 1 in 4. You are right. <laughs> and you are already equaling your best score after just one question. So let's hope you're on a roll. So next, we'll go on to one of the greatest cars on film. The DeLorean, manufactured in Northern Ireland. Now, the DMC-12 gained fame as, do you remember? Marty McFly's Time Machine in Back to the Future. I love that film. Now, that was before the company went out of business in 1982. Now, it's due to make a comeback this year under completely new owners as an electric sports car. So far, there are a few details about this new car, but if it were to live up to the reputation of the DMC, what do you think it would have to offer as an optional extra? It's multiple choice. I'm being kind here. Would it be a flux capacitor, a video car phone or a gold plated option? Ooh, now I know my 1980s classic films. So a flux capacitor is only really an option on Marty McFly's version. So then we're left with what the, the gold plated version? Nah, that just sounds ridiculous. So I'm going to go the video phone. 
No, I think that's old hat now because it's actually offered a gold-plated version. And believe it or not, seven people actually put down a deposit on a gold DeLorean. But don't worry, you could still, Sarah, beat your top score. You might have lost out here, but there's still two to come. Sticking with films, James Bond has driven a number of British makes, most famously the Aston Martin DB5. But what was the first car he drove in Dr. No? give you a clue it was a british manufacturer but was it the sunbeam alpine the bentley mark IV, or the lotus esprit oh no i've got no idea i mean the lotus i think that was later that was about the 1970s so that was way after dr no but other than that i just i haven't a clue so i'm gonna say the bentley I'm sorry. It was the far less well-known Sunbeam Alpine. Now, the story goes that it was such a low-budget film that they had to borrow a car in Jamaica and there weren't a lot of sports cars to choose at that time from on the island. So, specific cars seem to be giving you a problem. So, we'll go back to some industry figures for you, Sarah. So, according to figures from the Society of Motor Manufacturers, how many cars are there on UK roads? Is it 15 million, 25 million? or 35 million well i'm sure it's more than 15 million but other than that i don't really know so i'm going to go down the middle and say 25 million i'm afraid it's just over 35 million all those multi-car families out there so so close to beating your score but in the end it was one out of four maybe next time (laughs) one in four actually sounds quite similar to my record for passing driving tests so i'm pretty happy with that Maybe if you do drive out to record in my broom cupboard, you'd better come by bus then. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all from us this time. But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 21st of February and Emma's interview was recorded on the 17th of February and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and it's considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Nigel, Sophie, Emma and Jeff, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>